you have a Bible, uh, I would like to invite you to turn to uh, Genesis chapter 1. If you're not sure where that is, uh, you have failed Christianity. You have to start all over. I'm just kidding. Christ- uh, Genesis chapter 1 is the very uh, first book of the Bible, the very first page. Uh, if, uh, if your Bible is uh, structured that way, maybe you have larger print and, and chapter 1 bleeds over into page 2. But either way, a very easy book to find. And this morning we're going to cover Genesis chapter 1, verses 14, and then we're going to go all the way through to chapter 2, verse 3. So as you turn there, uh, let me say a prayer for our time together, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that uh, as we see in creation, uh, just a word from you uh, can bring life into existence. There are many people here today that are desperate to hear a word from you. Maybe a word of encouragement. Maybe a word of hope when all they have is despair. Maybe a word or a promise of victory when they feel defeated. We know that when you speak, you bring life and you bring hope and you demonstrate that you love And we pray that you would speak to us through your word today. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear uh, and a heart to respond in obedience and faith. That you would use your word for the purpose for which you send it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 1, starting in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. This is the formation of galaxies and planets. The entire universe outside of our earth. Verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. This describes what we um, describe as our sun and moon. And uh, in contrast to the nations all around Israel at this time when Moses is writing, uh, especially from Egypt where they came, the sun god Ra uh, was a a god himself, worshipped as a god. And so in the creation account, they're just described as the greater light and the lesser light. Verse 17, God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. By the way, that pattern, evening, morning, and a a numbered day, uh, depicts a 24-hour period. Some people uh, might think of creation days as what's called the day-age theory, which means that each day could have lasted millions or even billions of years. Uh, but that's not the plain reading of Scripture. And the plain reading of Scripture is that God creates in, in 24-hour periods. And one indication of that is on day three, He creates grass. And so if that was a day-age theory, uh, there is no sunlight, according to day-age theory, for millions or billions of years 
It would not be sustained. It wouldn't flourish. It wouldn't be ready for food on the fourth day. So anytime in Scripture that you see this pattern, evening, morning, and a numbered day, the word yom, it always indicates a 24-hour period. Um, That's the clearest, plainest, um, emphatic reading of Genesis 1, is that these are six 24-hour literal days. I know that's different from what uh, we have learned in school, uh, but the theory of evolution comes with its own issues and complications and requires just as much faith as reading Genesis 1 does. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them. It's the first time God has blessed anything in creation. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. By the way, that according to their kinds gives order, structure, and limits the the process of change. According to their kinds. We see it in the trees, uh, and any seed-bearing plant, uh, any of the um, uh, fish of the sea, and any of the birds of the air, any creatures on land, all reproduce according to their kind. Um, We read into our uh, cultural evolutionary perspective. We eisegete that onto the, we impose that on the text. Um, You don't see it in the text. It's not an exegetical uh, idea that we gain from the text. When we study the Word of God, uh, we can either bring our own cultural understandings and impose it on the text and kind of force it in there. or we can read the text and allow it to shape our worldview and our beliefs. And I'm, my role is to present to you only what Scripture says. And so in this way, they produce and reproduce according to their kinds, limiting their evolutionary um, uh, reproductibility. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God Barah is the word there. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he, Barah, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Three times in a chiastic structure, giving prominence to that center passage that God created male and female in his image. The crowning achievement of his creative glory on day six. Also, the longest passage of creation days verse 28 continues and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth and God said behold I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit 
You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. By the way, that word good, uh, repeated throughout the six days of creation, doesn't just indicate uh, what we would understand as just goodness. It has a sense of completion, of finality, and a sense of God's satisfaction over what he created. And so with the creation of man, it's not just good. Male and female, it is very good. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Next week we pick up with the... uh, Uh, second sort of creation account that really zeroes in on man and woman. But today we're really just going to consider days four through seven. Uh, I've never been to Paris, uh, but I've read about a particular chapel there. Most people who visit Paris would visit Notre Dame. Um, But if you're ever in Paris, I've read that you should go and see the stained glass chapel at St. Chapelle. I have a picture of it here on the screen. Uh, The images don't do it justice, but this uh, environment, uh, if you visit between the hours of one and five, the sun hits the stained glass windows and it produces an incredible ambiance and an environment that's bathed in multicolored lights and with the glow of the candlelights and the lighting, uh, just the natural lighting alone is incredible. When you get a sense of the entire picture of all the stained glass, it creates this incredible environment. It was commissioned in the 13th century by Louis IX. It's a Gothic chapel, and it boasts 15 stained glass panels that depict more than a thousand biblical figures and pictures. If you know anything about the Middle Ages, when these stained glass windows were added to chapels, Uh, The Mass was typically recited in Latin, and the common person didn't hear or understand Latin. And so these pictures were uh, what we would understand as modern-day movies or images that would bring the Bible stories to life. You could walk up within five feet of these stained glass windows and see particular Bible stories depicted on this image. There's a a second picture here uh, of just some of the close-ups of a portion of the stained glass window. Well, the Bible's message has been compared to a beautiful stained glass window that gives us that big picture of our Creator God and His redemptive work and the redemptive arc in Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. At a distance, a stained glass window is beautiful and it gives us a complete picture, but, but we can also walk right up close and focus in on one small picture. So this morning I want to start about 50 feet away from the Bible's uh, uh, stained glass image, as it were, and I want us to get a sense of the entire biblical narrative before we walk right up to one piece of glass and focus on days four through seven. 
The creation account in Genesis, and it continues throughout the rest of Scripture, beckons us to know the Creator intimately. To have an intimate fellowship and relationship with God. Jonathan pointed this out in his excellent sermon last week on days 1 through 3 in Genesis 1 through 13. 1 1 through 13. He pointed out in his first point that creation reveals a creator. I was on the way to the airport and I had my phone right up to my ear, uh, live streaming the service so that I could hear his uh, excellent message, which I uh, put online on Friday. And so if you want to go back and listen to that, Jonathan pointed out this, that creation reveals our Creator. And throughout the creation account and the rest of Scripture, we don't just see an absolute, impersonal God that kind of wound up creation and just let it go according to its own processes. We see a God who's willing to come down and interact with and to know and be known by people. I mean, just in a couple of chapters, we're going to see um, this absolute Creator God, perfect in His attributes uh, and in all of His ways and wisdom. He's not just content to stay removed from heavens, but He, he walks in the garden seeking out fellowship with Adam and Eve, and he's concerned when he can't find them, and, and they're hiding from him, and he finds them, and, and then he carefully constructs skins for them. This is a personal God that we can know. He reveals himself to us, and he doesn't just want you to know facts about him. He calls us to know him experientially. We see that same spirit that fluttered above the waters is the same spirit that indwells the new believer so that we're reminded of all the things that Jesus taught and we're ushered into truth and we're convicted. This same spirit that was a part of creation in the Godhead also dwells within us. What does that indicate? That God wants you to know him personally and intimately. This word in the Septuagint and in the Greek New Testament is the word gnosko, and it's the Greek word for know, and it describes not just a, a knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. And we see it throughout Scripture. Moses prayed in Exodus 33, let me know you. If I found favor in your eyes, um, come with us. How will anybody know that we're your people unless you are right there with us? And let me know and experience you, was Moses' prayer. And God said, okay, there's a cleft near me and a rock, and, and I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by, and I'll declare who I am. The God, the God, the Lord, uh, steadfast in love and abounding in mercy, he declares his name, and Moses has this experience with him. In Jeremiah 9, 23-24, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Jeremiah wrote that the wise man should not boast in his wisdom, uh, nor the rich man boast in his riches, nor the strong man boast in his strength, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he gnoscos me, that he knows me, and he understands me. Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that his only desire was to know Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings. Even Jesus prayed in John 17, defining heaven and eternal life. And he said it this way, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in this creation account, we see this absolute God, perfect in His attributes, yet He's extremely, wildly personal, caring, and experiential. What's the difference in knowing someone in that way? versus knowing someone just sort of factually. Well, if you're a sports fan or a, 
uh, fan of movies and, and your favorite actor or maybe your favorite player, you might know facts about them. You might know where they were born and where they were raised and, and where they went to college and what their on-base percentage is and what their uh, other statistics are. But that's different than knowing uh, what their voice sounds like in the morning or being able to see in their eyes when they're tired or understanding their moods and their uh, different personality quirks and idiosyncrasies. There's a major difference in knowing about someone and knowing someone. Listen, you can have facts about God and still not know Him intimately. This is one of the greatest tragedies for regular churchgoers. All too often, people are content to show up in church and take notes and learn facts and figures about God and information about biblical culture and history without any sort of uh, movement of the Spirit within their heart, convicting them of sin or, or leading them into new insights in which they can apply and experience with God. We can personally know and interact with this relational God. Jesus said, My sheep know my voice, and I know them. The greatest purpose of your life is to have this experiential knowledge of God. But why don't we? Why don't you have a close and intimate relationship with God? How sad would life be if we are created for eternity, as Scripture says, and we pass through this life without having any intimate knowledge of God and His workings that He made possible to you through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus? What if you went through this entire life and never knew God personally, but knew all about Him, our lives would be wasted for eternity. Well, I want to return to that question at the end of the message today, but I wanted to say that at the outset of the message because there's a temptation to come to Genesis just to gather facts and information about science and planets and creation days and to compare it with our worldview. And there's a temptation for us just to be content to approach a text like this and just to learn neat things about God. Maybe it'll benefit you on trivia night at your local pub or something. But I say all this because it's not just good to know about God and creation. It's better to know Him intimately. If your knowledge of God doesn't produce worship and love and obedience and a sense of awe and reverence that leads to fruitfulness and greater worship, you may just be one of those people who collect facts about God but has never experienced the life-producing, regenerative work of the Spirit when you surrender your life and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now that we've zoomed out, we see the, the full stained glass window. Let's get up and close with one of the individual panels and look at Genesis uh, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 through chapter 2, 3. We're just going to cover days 4 through 7 briefly this morning. On day 4, Verses 14 through 19, we have this fourth day. God reveals to us here the purpose of the created universe. We have the creation of the stars and planets, the sun and the moon, the galaxies, everything that we see through telescopes and through Hubble telescopes and through um, long-distance telescopes and everything we don't see. What are these lights in the heavens? 
I can tell you that we don't know all that we want to know. I'm one of those guys who follows all the stuff on social media and pages that I just have a deep curiosity about space and and the stars and the galaxies. We're not told all that we want to know here, but we're told enough to help us see the purpose. Planets, stars, galaxy, our sun and moon, described here for Moses and for the Israelites who just came out of Egypt. Um, Those have this purpose as separation from day and night for signs and seasons, days and years, light upon the earth, the two great lights, the sun and the moon, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night. But what we don't see here is the purpose to deify or to worship or to impose on the sun and the stars and the moon and, and all the galaxies in the universe, we are not seeing here any sort of uh, personality upon which we should worship them. They are created objects. As a matter of fact, Revelation says that at the end times, when we're all before the throne, it says, heaven and earth will be cast away and there will be no more place for them. This created order is temporary. All that we see and think is fixed forever. The Bible says it's just temporary and it has a purpose for us while we're on this planet. Ancient Near Eastern cultures worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and God. Really, that's not too different from our culture today. I can't remember the name of that um, turtle in Kung Fu Panda, right? But he sort of play, puts into plain language what our culture thinks. The universe has brought us the, the dragon warrior, or whatever he says, right? Kids will know if I'm misquoting it or not, but, but that's kind of how our culture talks, right? I mean, I, don't, I think we kind of hear this language every day. The universe might have a plan for you, or the universe wants to do something in your life. And, and so our culture wants to ascribe to the galaxy and to the universe some sort of um, force providentially ordaining our small lives on this planet. We see published in so many places astronomical charts with people seeking meaning and purpose, looking into stars and formations to know who they should marry and what job they should take and and what their good numbers are to play the lottery. People ascribe wisdom and knowledge and a personal sense of connection to the universe that the Bible never ascribes. I think we hear this language a lot. And so, Christ follower, I want you to recognize this language and I want you to purge from your vocabulary any of these ideas or notions from our culture that attribute godly direction and providence and even worship to the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies. When he says that these were created for times and seasons, one Hebrew word, and it's the same word used in Deuteronomy and and Leviticus to reveal to the Israelites the calendar of prescribed worship. To reveal to them how and when Israel was to worship God, they were simply calendrical measurements of time and seasons. This shows us that one of the purposes of planets, stars, and universe is not to reveal some mystical plan for your life, not to predict your future, not to tell you what job to take and who to marry and who not to marry, but to show you how and when to worship the Creator, not the creation, and how to order your life. Our culture wants to use the stars in the universe as a means to knowledge and as a replacement to... um, to sort of get rid of the worship of the Creator God. 
But God sees these things as objects that point to the Creator, that He longs to be worshipped as the Creator of those things. Moving on to day five, uh, in verses 20 to 23, uh, on this day in creation, that which was empty began to be filled. Jonathan pointed out last week that days one through three, God created these forms. Uh, the heavens and the earth, the, the sky and the, uh, the dry ground, these sort of forms were sitting vacant and empty. An eerie silence probably fell over the created order. But day five describes that which is empty beginning to be filled. You probably heard the phrase that nature abhors a vacuum. Have you heard that phrase before? I think it's this, um, this sort of... Um, at least this observation that, that when something is empty, it, it wants to be filled with something. I find this problem in my uh, bare spots in my grass all the time, right? Weeds want to find their way into um, uh, my flower bed, um, into my sidewalk cracks. Just, just things empty want to be filled. And I can remember the first day we moved into our house, we walked down into the basement and it was this, I could see the floor. I mean, it was wonderful. I, there was, it, I could see every corner. There was nothing in there. I remember moving into our garage and I thought, what am I going to do with a three-bay garage? I mean, just completely empty. And, and within a year, all of those spaces were filled with things. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I cleaned out my two bays of my garage and just getting rid of stuff that you've accumulated. It's like my favorite place to hang out. But I couldn't, there was a time I couldn't remember what was empty being filled. And this was a similar sense in which all of those empty spaces that God had created on days one through three, all the oceans, all the seas with no life in them, all the dry ground with not an insect, not an animal, not a bird, nothing. What an eerie, awkward, sort of creepy horror movie kind of thought that this is just a weird, silent planet. And so on day five, God fills what was previously empty. It's filled with swarms and with teeming life, and we can envision schools of fish and flocks of birds swimming and flying in formation. We have every variety of sea life and bird life created here in all their varieties. We may think of things like the megalodon, it says the great sea creatures, or Loch Ness monster, giant squids. Oh, we have no idea. We have no idea what's in our oceans. It's been said that we know more about uh, space than we do about what's in our own oceans. Uh, we have no idea what extraordinary creatures God created in that day and that have survived into today. I remember my friend Aaron Harvey took his family to the beach. Do you go into the ocean when you go uh, to the beach? I may go in a few feet, but I have a healthy fear of what's out there. Aaron and I share that same fear. And um, Aaron was about 10 or 15 feet uh, in the water when he heard someone yell, shark, and he took off running, passing by his two-year-old, his four-year-old, and his six-year-old, immediately getting out into dry land before realizing, oh, I should probably you know, save my family. But, but there's some sort of fear about what's in the waters, what's in the ocean. Uh, I watch enough fishing shows and ocean life to have a healthy fear of that, and I'll stick to the shallows. Thank you very much. <laughs> God doesn't just create this ocean life, but He also creates these birds that fill the air. Every variety of bird according to their kind. 
At the risk of losing everyone for the rest of the message, I often ask these dumb questions. If you've rode in the car with me for any length of time, uh, I'll just say, you know, if you couldn't ride around in a car and you, you only had to ride some sort of animal, right? Besides a donkey or a horse, what animal would you ride? And I always come up with a different one. Some days I'm like, I'll ride a kangaroo. I could see me kind of trotting up on a kangaroo or a rhinoceros. And, and I have a theory. I mean, I've, I've asked a hundred people this questions and they always fall into a few categories. I'll have to test you on that uh, at some other point, but I'm fascinated by the birds and the animals. Uh, my favorite picture, uh, I think uh, Zach has it here. My favorite bird um, on the planet is called the shoebill stork. Have you guys seen these things? The shoebill stork stands about this tall. It's from Uganda, and, um, and you need to look at these images of it. It's got a wingspan of about eight feet, and when it, when it walks, it has this sort of terrifying face, and it makes the predator sound. You know that movie Predator? It makes that sort of like that sort of clap down sound, it's terrifying, but it's my favorite. I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, it'd be one big shoe bill store, just to intimidate everybody. <laughs> one final observation, just to get us back on track here. About day five, Warren Wearsby points out that there's a new element to creation added on this day. God not only called the work good, but for the first time we see the word bless. He blesses the creatures that he made. God's blessing enabled the creatures and the fowl to reproduce abundantly and to enjoy all that he had made for them. Have you ever watched a dolphin leaping out of the water or a whale? There just seems to be a natural joy that they carry in their environment. I don't feel the same about great white sharks, but some animals are just a joy to watch. I'm moving on to Galatians, uh, to day six, verses 24 through 31. On day six, God creates these land-dwelling animals and also humanity. By the way, days four and six are the longest um, descriptions of the creative days that God gives, and day six is the longest. I don't have a lot of time to say much about the land animals, but it's enough to say this, that our God is a creative creator filled with imagination. Have you ever looked at a giraffe, right? How does the blood go up that neck uh, into its tiny head? Have you ever seen how funny ostriches uh, and emus look? Or have you ever watched one of those lizards in slow motion that runs across the water with the big sort of wings? Or have you ever watched a squirrel dropping out of a tree from 100 feet and, and angling itself, no matter how it twists, to perfectly land on its feet? Have you ever heard a cheetah make a cat sound, like a meow sound. I always thought that animals roared, these big cats roared, but, but they make this sort of meow sound. Don't be tempted by that. If you're ever in um, Africa and you hear a meow sound in the bushes. All these animals on the land reflect this creative, colorful, and imaginative God. But we got to get to humans because this is the culmination. The greatest of God's created order is mankind, men and women. In the creation day of day six, God, his crowning achievement is both men and women. Kenneth Matthew puts it this way, the crown of God's handiwork is human life and the narrative marks the prominence 
of this creative act in several ways, meaning the literary structure and all the ways that Genesis 1 is formulated. It all sort of culminates and comes together on this day six in the creation of humans. And he lists these eight ways that it comes together to show the crown of God's handiwork. He says that the creation account shows this ascending order of significance with human life as the pinnacle. Imagine that. Greater than Mars, greater than our own planet, greater than our solar system, greater than our galaxies, God is most proud of creating humanity, more so than the universe. The second reason he says is that of all the creative acts, this is the only one that's preceded by divine deliberation. He says, let us make man in our image. Nowhere else does God ascribe that sort of value and significance in creation. Number three, he says this personal expression replaces all the impersonal words that we've heard so far. Let there be light. Let the earth bring forth. Let the seas do this. In all these ways, he's just saying things. But then when he says about mankind, he says, let us make man in our image. Human life alone is created in the image of God and has the special assignment to rule over the created order. His fifth reason shows that the word bara or created occurs three times in verse 27 in this sort of chiastic poem. Verse six, I mean, number six, the event is given a longer description than all the previous ones. Number seven in verse 27, the arrangement in verse 27 highlights the emphasis on the word image. And eight, unlike the animals who are said to have come from the land, Verse 25 makes clear that God created them, but humanity is a direct creation of God. And we'll see more about that next week as he is the only creature that God breathes ruach, like his spirit, into their nostrils. Meaning that we are of all things created, sun, moon, stars, galaxy, waters, oceans, animals, atmosphere, of everything, we are the only thing that carries within it the ruach of God, the breath of God. And I say all that to say this, that if you ever doubt the value of your life, if you ever doubt the dignity of your humanity, if you buy into our cultural worldview that you're only as good as your image or your contribution, that you yourself are not as valuable, even though you have the Imago Dei, the image of God stamped on your DNA and within your created body. Don't believe it. Our culture would tell you that humans are a plague to the earth and that we're disposable. And while our culture might spend great effort to save the, the spotted owl, or the whales or dogs at a dog pound, certainly we should care about those things. At the same time, our culture regularly treats unwanted humans in the womb as less than the Imago Dei. Now, as one who has personally participated in uh, abortion before I became a Christ follower, and statistically one out of four women uh, within the church have had an abortion. I just want you to know that I, I bring this topic up sensitively and carefully, understanding that there's tremendous pain involved. 
uh, tremendous regret, tremendous difficulty. And I don't say this in any way to inflict more damage on you if that is your story, but only to um, magnify what your Creator thinks and believes about human life. Every human being is an image bearer. Every human being has value endowed by the Creator. Men and women are created uniquely equal, holding the most special place in God's created order. And that's true for every beating heart in this room. And I pray that you would not forget that. And I pray that with the voices of our culture telling you that your life is worthless or that your life is a waste or that you won't amount to anything, people regularly hear those things. I want you to know that within the church of Jesus Christ and within God's word, we are to, as Jesus said, love our neighbor as ourself. Even if we're strangers, I should recognize the Imago Day within you and love you well. And you as well must love others. Don't ever doubt that God knitted humans together in their mother's womb and made them unique and special and that he loves and values all human life. If you ever doubt it, be reminded of the cross. That's why we preach the cross. We never get over the cross because at the cross, the perfect intersection of God's anger and wrath against sin and humanity perfectly met at the crossroads with God's perfect love and that he didn't punish us for his sin, but he took the punishment and his own wrath upon his own son, Jesus Christ, to demonstrate his love for you. If you ever wonder if you have value, look at the cross that's tattooed somewhere on you or that you wear as jewelry and just be reminded that it's the perfect intersection of God's wrath over sin and his anger and his perfect judgment over sin as well as his perfect love for humanity and that he bore that wrath on himself so that you wouldn't have to. We'll close out with day seven. On day seven, we read in chapter two, verses one through three, that God rested from his work of creation. And I want you to notice, it's very clear here that the heavens and the earth were finished, completed, not evolving, not changing over billions and billions and billions of years. The text in the Bible presents this very clearly, that the work was created in six days, and on the seventh day, God didn't say, have you ever painted a room and gone back and said, oh, I missed that spot, or it's not very good, it's not even good, right? I missed a spot, I need to go back. Or have you ever looked at something and somebody else says, oh, it looks great. And then you say, well, I know every imperfection, right? I know everything wrong. And we, we tend to finish things without perfection. God didn't have any cleanup work to do on day seven. There wasn't any tweaking. There wasn't any touch-ups. There wasn't anything left for him to do. He completely rested. And it's not because he needed the rest. Um, he created the day of rest, the Sabbath day, and he blessed it and he made it holy for a few reasons. Let me go into them. The Sabbath day would eventually be ordained as a day of rest, and it became a command for all of Israel. As you remember in Exodus 20, it was the fourth um, of the Ten Commandments that we should observe the Sabbath, that we should keep it holy, and that we should rest and do no work on it. But ultimately, uh, during the Old Testament, Sabbath observance was required, but it was skipped, and it wasn't done well. And then during the intertestamental period, it developed into this ridiculous um, day of man-made legalistic activity that you could only take so many steps and you could only do so much work. And, and then um, we are reminded in Mark 2.27 that Jesus recovered that pure meaning of the Sabbath when he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not ma 
not man for the Sabbath. And that brings one particular point into focus, that the Sabbath that we see in Genesis 2, 1-3, proclaimed at creation, was intended to serve mankind as a holy day, giving blessing and observing God's rest, restoration, recreation, and refreshment. In other words, God didn't rest because he was tired or worn out. He didn't have sweat on his head. He didn't need a cold tea and a rocking chair. He, he just rested as an example for us to rest from six days of labor. Now, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, or um, inaugurated by Christ, we're not required to observe Sabbath day restrictions. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't follow the pattern of hard work and rest. If God gives us this example, this rhythm of work, and then a day of rest, we would do well to follow his example. Do you work hard for six days? And some of you do. Others of us, eh, you know, probably do a little better. Do you rest well? What do you do for rest? The word recreation has this idea of recreating. Some people are energized by people, right? Those weird extroverts, right? Some of us introverts need hours alone, right? Just to be refreshed. For me, it's a hammock by a stream and a fire pit. What do you do to rest well? What's your weekly routine look like? All that's well and good. But I would be... um, I would be... um, wrong if I didn't point out that there's a greater and deeper and more meaningful sense of rest that the Bible speaks of. I don't have time to read it all, but Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 describe the Israelites as shrinking away in disobedience and faithlessness. Remember, they were delivered from Egypt, walked through the Red Sea on dry land, into the wilderness, Uh, within a matter of months, were right up at the doorstep of the promised land, sent the spies in. The spies came back, gave a report. There's giants in the land, but uh, Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. God has, God has given us the strength and he'll, he'll, he'll deliver us. And yet the entire nation shrank away and failed to follow through in obedience. And Hebrews 3 and 4 says they failed to enter God's Sabbath rest. What does that mean? Hebrews 3.19 says they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so while the promise of entering God's rest still stands for you and I, you and I should be afraid lest any of us fail to enter into God's ultimate Sabbath rest. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, verses 3-11, through says that uh, he who believes will enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, those who shrink back in faithlessness shall not enter my rest, And then it says, um, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is he talking about? He's talking about our eternal destination. Where you will go when you die. Stupid preacher joke, 10 out of 10 people will die according to the latest research and statistics, right? So dumb, I've heard it. I've said that too many times. I should retire it. But the truth is, you and I face our mortality. Could be an amoeba. It could be a virus. Could be an accident. Could be anything. 
We are not promised the rest of today. And at any moment, any one of us could be ushered into an eternal existence. Not a, an annihilation, not uh, uh, an unconscious sleep. Our soul, that ruach that I mentioned earlier, the spirit that God places within us, it's designed to last for eternity. And if the Israelites who failed to exercise faith were, were kept out of God's rest in the land, we can see that the Sabbath has to be so much more than you and I just hanging out in a hammock one day a week or scrolling through social media just to check out for a little while. Sabbath is much more than that. It has everything to do with an eternal rest that's available for your soul. The truth is it can begin today. Jacob wrestled with God. And you remember the story? He struggled with God all night at the river Peniel. And there came a moment when he couldn't win. He was matched at every turn in the fight until he recognized that he couldn't overpower God. And God touched the socket of his hip, wrenched it out of place, rendering Jacob submitted and surrendered, forever changing the trajectory of his life and his eternity. We know, because we have the Bible's entire message, the arc of redemptive history, that if you will stop fighting against God, if you'll surrender your will, repenting of your sins, stop approaching life your way, but fully surrender to Jesus Christ, who offers you life and grace and forgiveness and mercy, adoption, inheritance, the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, a new start, a new beginning, regeneration. Just as Lazarus was called from the dead to life, Jesus can call your dead soul back to life, restoring the Ruah, the Spirit of God within you that was lost at the fall. Just listen to Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his invitation. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Yes. The remedy? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you were to enter into the ultimate Sabbath rest, a person must repent and believe, specifically repenting of our sins and our human efforts to achieve salvation by works of your flesh and rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's it. We must surrender and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. That's how we will enter into final rest and Sabbath. I started the message saying that God wants you to know Him, and I've just described for you the path. How do you come to know Him? Simple trust in Jesus Christ. You don't have to adopt our subculture, sometimes our weird subculture, Christianity. Spent a lot of time the last few weeks watching a documentary called Shiny Happy People about what I can only describe as a dangerous, destructive, anti-Christian subculture. I'm not asking you to be weird for Jesus. I'm not asking you to join a cult. 
I'm asking you to be reunited with the God who created you through the provision that he's provided in Jesus Christ, his only son, who died on the cross to save you from your sins. Not everyone will, and I pray that you will. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you promise uh, to use your word to fulfill the purpose for which you've sent it. And for some people, uh, the purpose of your word might be uh, to further harden their heart, for them to continue to run from you at their own destruction. For others, it might be an opportunity for them to just stop and take stock of their life and to evaluate where they are with you. It's my prayer that they would experience new life in you, Jesus. Your word tells us in a prayer from Paul, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord Jesus, just a little while and we will see you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We acknowledge with Paul that the earthly tent that you have confined us to will eventually wear out. Paul acknowledges in 2 Corinthians 5 that we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, not a house made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. And in this tent, we groan and we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. But while we're still in this tent, we groan with burdens. Not that we would be unclothed, but that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So we are always of good courage because you have given us your spirit as a guarantee that animates this tent and gives it life. We know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. But we would rather be away from this body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please you, Father. All of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, your word tells us, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So for those here today who face that judgment on their own without the covering that Jesus, my righteousness, provides, I pray that they would seek shelter under the refuge of your wings, that they would hide themselves in the cleft as your presence covers us and passes over, that we may with one voice declare, the Lord, the Lord, steadfast and abounding in mercy and grace. We pray that we would be found in you, Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.